Well, let me introduce, so Steve is going to be speaking today, and the reason I want to introduce him is Steve is someone that really provokes me to go deeper in the world. word. We've probably only had maybe four, five, six conversations now about the Word and about studying the Word and about going deeper in the Word, but I can say that every single time that I have been in His presence, every single time that we've had a conversation, every single time we've even begun to discuss the Word together, I have left inspired and provoked and just this deep desire to go deeper. Something gets stirred up in me every single time. And so um, in the times I've heard him teach here, I've left. I've been, man, I need to go get into the word more. And so I feel like he's going to offer that to us this morning. He's going to stir up that hunger. So join me in welcoming Steve this morning. Can you guys hear me? We good? All right. Let me put this down here because I certainly will knock it off before I'm done. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. We are in the middle of a series called Worship, Grow, and Go, right there behind me. And this theme is really sort of a reset to, to cast a vision of what we are and who we are as a congregation coming out of a very challenging 2020 for every single person here, undoubtedly. For several weeks, uh, our leaders have taught about the worship of the Lord, and then for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about spiritual growth and what it means to grow in the Lord. Um, Pastor Josh led off the grow section of this series by talking about the parable of the soils and, and the importance of the soil of our heart and emphasizing certain spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines that can help us to grow closer to God. Pastor Aaron followed last week uh, on the heels of, of Josh's message by talking about more spiritual practices and, and particularly emphasizing the spiritual practice of serving, serving one another and serving our community. Today, I'm going to close our, our growth section of this series uh, on spiritual growth by talking about the key to spiritual growth, the key to spiritual growth. Now, how many of you have ever played golf? Anybody ever played golf before? <laughs> Nobody wants to say they've ever played golf before. Well, th th to be honest with you, you know, I, I started, I should say, trying to learn how to play golf a, a long time ago. And I, I still am what you would call a professional hacker. I mean, when I go play golf, the, the, they know I've been there. I mean, it's either, you know, the groundhogs or me, one of the two, but we're... There's holes everywhere. I mean, I get my money's worth when I play golf, okay? So, but, you know, when I started off, they tried to teach me correctly. And, they, and so they, they give me this list of things that I'm supposed to think about when I'm swinging at a golf ball. So the first thing they said was, you know, you got you to gotta put your left hand on top of the club like this, okay? And then you got to put the ball, like, off your left heel here, okay? Then you got to line up the club so it's kind of coming up, zoop, like this, up your left arm. Then you got to take your right hand. Everybody say right hand. Right hand, you got to put it over on top of. You got that on top, not on the side. Don't be a baseball player, okay? On top of the club like this, all right? And then after you get set like this, you got to waggle. Everybody say waggle. I don't know why they waggle, but they all waggle, okay? And then after you get done waggling, you got to stick out your butt, okay? Okay, like that. And then you start. You take a deep breath. 
You go back slowly, slow, 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 slow. And you don't, don't turn, don't, don't, don't break your wrist too quickly. Don't break them too quickly. Don't break, uh, not too much in front. Come around to the back. Okay, don't squeeze so hard with the right hand. Let go with the right hand. You come up, you come up, you come up. Uh, come up, bend, bend. Straighten out your elbow. You, get up here. you can't see the ball anymore and you can't breathe. It's time to swing. And point your belly button to the flag. And you look down the fairway, and, and, and you look down, and the ball is still there. It's just so frustrating. Everybody say amen. amen. Oh, my God. You know, the bottom line is, that's kind of how I feel about life sometimes. It's like I, I've, got, I've got so much going on that I can't seem to focus. Well, one day, this, this, this guy who probably was tired of seeing me waggle, I mean, it's never a good scene, right? He, he says, listen, I, I know what your problem is. I said, okay, what, what's the problem? He says, you're thinking too much. You're like thinking of the five things when you dress the ball and the 10 things when you bring the club back. And by the time you get through with that, you're so discombobulated, you swing and you don't even hit the ball. And you know, he was right. He said, I'll tell you what you do. I want you to choose one swing thought. Just one. And guess which one I want you to start with? Keep your eye on the ball. Oh, okay, I can do that. Keep your eye on the ball. And, and you know, life is like that. I mean, we've, we've got all kinds of things. If I sat down with each one of you, you could probably list 5, 10, 15, 20 things in a given day, and that, that doesn't include all of the dings you get from the emails, and ding, ding, you get from your texts, and ding, 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 you get from your Instagram. I don't know what that one is. I don't even have it. But the bottom line is, you know, that's all that stuff on top of that. And at times, we could just feel so frazzled, we feel like we never hit the ball ever spiritual growth can be like that I know I got to read my Bible I need to pray I need to, to serve I, maybe I need to teach a class I need to give money I need to shake people's hands I need to smile I, I, it, we got a whole list of things we got to do and then if we don't read our Bible each day oh I'm on my schedule, I'm on a one-year schedule. I was supposed to read 10 chapters. I only through three. God, forgive me. No. We, we, we make our spiritual practices kind of a personal set of laws. We make them the end instead of the means to the goal. And we start to judge ourselves by them, and the devil's like, oh, yeah, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. We start to judge ourselves by them, and we knock ourselves down all in the name of trying to grow closer to the Lord. Okay. So today, Micah, today, you can have that's a new ball, man. <laughs> to, today, I want to talk about the one swing thought, the one key to spiritual growth. And that key is knowing God and knowing Jesus whom he has sent. Look at your neighbor and say, knowing God and knowing Jesus whom he has sent. I want you to turn with me to John 17, 
verses 1, 2, 3, and our magic people on the back will slap that up there if you didn't bring your Bible today. I hope you bring your Bibles. You know, I really do. I, I think it's great to have it on the screen, but I also think there's something about holding the Word of God in front of you, so bring your Bibles with you. Today, as Corey said, is Palm Sunday, and the whole, the whole world, the Christian world, is celebrating the entry of the Messiah, the King Jesus, into Jerusalem. And Jesus rode, as, as Corey said, into Jerusalem on a donkey and, uh, to fulfill the prophecy of, of, in Zechariah 9.9 that the Messiah would come riding humble on a donkey. In Matthew 21, we see Jesus fulfills this prophecy. And as he's riding into, into the city of Jerusalem, there are people, as Corey said, who were throwing their cloaks on the ground in a sign of honor to the coming king. And there were people who were waving palm branches, as you were this morning. I was so excited to see that because that was a well-known Jewish symbol of victory. Of victory. They were waving victory banners because here came the king into Jerusalem. But he was not coming into Jerusalem to assert a military reign or to engage in a military battle or to kill or destroy or to, to oppress and push on. He came in to die on a cross. And to be resurrected from the dead. To engage in the ultimate victory. For the soul of every man and every woman. Now Jesus had, had ridden into Jerusalem on the donkey just a few days before we get to the scripture in John chapter 17. In fact, we are at the end of the Last Supper. They just celebrated the Passover. Jesus is with his disciples for the last time before they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and, and he knows that when he gets to the Garden, he will be arrested. And he knows what follows is the cross. In less than 24 hours from this moment, Jesus will be crucified on a cross. And he knows it. His disciples are gathered around him there in the upper room and as his last act before he goes to the garden, he begins to pray for them. He prays for his disciples, and he prays for those who will come to know God through his disciples before he turns his face to the cross that lay ahead of him. Here's what it says he did next. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The key to spiritual growth, the key to life, to eternal life, the key to all of life is knowing God and his son Jesus. In the moments that we have left today, I want to break this down for you into five basic points as we, as we exposit this passage in John. First, we're going to talk about the fact that our ultimate focus must be on knowing the one, the only true God, and Jesus whom he sent. 
Next, we're going to talk about what it means to know God. Third, we're going to talk about how important our knowing of God actually is. Fourth, we're going to talk about what Jesus means by eternal life and how it's related to knowing God. And finally, we're going to talk about spiritual growth and how that is related to eternal life and to knowing God. First point, our ultimate focus must be on knowing the only true God and Jesus whom he sent if we are to experience eternal life and grow toward the Lord. Jesus chooses the words only true God very expressly, and it's very significant that he does so. You see, this phrase, the only true God, is a hyperlink back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Jesus and all Israelites who were raised would have known this as the Shema. They would have been taught this as children, to repeat this, to recite this on a daily basis. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now saying that the Lord is one is not just a matter of saying that there is only one God. It means that there is only one God. But it is also a reference to focus or devotion to that one God. In other words, there is only one God, and we must be devoted ultimately to him and to no other. Now, I thought that Corey really captured the sense of this a few weeks ago when he preached. And he was talking about his, his marriage commitment to his wife, Anna. And he said, you know, when I said yes to Anna, I said no to four billion other women. And I was like, yeah, I get that. But, dude, I mean, you're good looking, but do you really think four billion other women would want to? I mean, it's just a little bit of an overstatement. He's a good looking guy, okay? But, but seriously, though, he captured the moment. The one true God means a devotion to the only one. And we know this because it goes on in verse 5 of chapter 6 to say that that. that uh, Israel is commanded to love the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might. They are to be devoted entirely to the only true God, the one true God. In fact, just in case they forget this, it goes on after that to say that they are supposed to teach this concept to their children. They are to talk about this in their homes. They are to talk about this everywhere they go. They are to think of this when they wake up in the morning and when they go to bed at night. Oh, and unless you forget, you are supposed to bind this on your hands and you're supposed to put it on your forehead in between your, your eyebrows and you're supposed to write this on your doorposts and you're supposed to put it on the gates of your house. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's like reminders on steroids. It's like God thought we might forget. And they did. But you get the picture. I mean, this is, the, this is God's way of emphasizing how important it is that we know the only true God and that we are singularly 
devoted to him. God does not want us to forget that he is to be our focus, our ultimate devotion. So in light of that, it's, it's really not surprising that the first of the Ten Commandments that he would give to Moses would be, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Same thing. And it's not surprising in the New Testament when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he starts off by saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The focus, the ultimate focus, the one swing thought has to be on God and knowing him. Then, it, then Jesus says, not just knowing the only true God, but also Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now the scriptures tell us that in the beginning, Jesus was with God in heaven. He existed before he came to the earth. He was with the Father in heaven. In fact, John actually begins his gospel in verse 1 by saying, In the beginning was the Word, the Word meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then we learn that God sent this Son of His, Jesus, from heaven to earth as a baby, a human being, who was raised in a, a blue-collar family, a carpenter's family, living in a small inconsequential town called Nazareth. I mean, he was one of us. Uh, it, it, it would be like being born in Pleasant Hill, okay? Anybody here from Pleasant Hill? Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I, just, I love Pleasant Hill. Pleasant Hill is just absolutely a metropolis. It's amazing, it's amazing. Right? But you get the idea. Nazareth, he was one of us. However, though the scriptures reveal that he was 100% human, just like us, they also tell us that he was 100% God. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, that the whole fullness of God dwelled in Jesus bodily. The whole fullness of God dwelt in the body of Jesus Christ. 100% God, 100% man at the same time. I call this being God in a bod. Look at your neighbor. Jesus, Jesus was God in a bod, okay? That's kind of 70s-ish, isn't it? I think so. Oh, well. Okay, but nevertheless, the point is, when you add all of this up, the point that Jesus is making in John 17, 3, is that if you want to know the only true God, then look at Jesus, whom he sent. Indeed, that is exactly what Jesus told his disciples earlier that same evening at the Last Supper. In John 14, verses 8 to 9, John wrote this. Philip, Philip was one of the apostles, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Mm. There's a reason why the New Testament begins with the first four books about Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
The point is, if we are to know the only true God, then we need to know Jesus Christ. If you want to know the Father, then look at the one he sent. He sent Jesus as one of us so that we could know him. He could have tweeted, right? He could have done an Instagram post. He could have had a banner going across the sky with an airplane. He could have had camels drawing something across the desert. He could have had a talking donkey. I mean, he did that in the Old Testament. He could have done all those things to say who he was, but he said, I'm not going to do that. I don't want them to mess this up. I'm going to send them someone just like them. Who speaks like them and walks like them and talks like them and laughs like them and cries like them. Someone just like them. If we want to know the only true God, just look at Jesus. So you might be thinking, all right, all right, all right, okay, you, you talked to him about this. I get the point. I get this only true God thing, and I understand Jesus, whom he sent, but, but, but what does it mean to know the only true God in Jesus? What does it mean to know him? Well, the type of knowing that Jesus is referencing here is, is not just knowing about God or knowing about Jesus. It, it's not like knowing information about something or knowing facts or, or knowing data. For example, you know, I have a biography of George Washington on my, in my library, and I, I, I love reading about George Washington. I even have a bust of George Washington in my office because I like Georgie, okay? I like him, all right? I know a fair amount of things about George. I mean, I know why he never smiled, because he had rotten teeth, okay? He had wooden dentures. I wouldn't smile either. Okay? I know all kinds of stuff I probably shouldn't know about George, but I don't really know George Washington. Moreover, knowing God is not just about acting like you know him or performing acts or deeds in his name. Listen to this. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus told his disciples, Not every one of you who says, Lord, Lord, to me will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, now note this, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what does, what does Jesus mean when he says that we must know the only true God, and Jesus whom he sent. The word know in, in John 17, 3 comes from a Greek word. It's pronounced gnosko. Look at your neighbor and say gnosko. Okay, wipe the spit off your neighbor's face that you just sprayed on them. Gnosko. And, and, and that, that word literally means the, the act of knowing, the act of knowing or getting to know someone in the context of an intimate relationship. The act of knowing or getting to know someone in the context of an intimate relationship. 
In other, words, the, in other words, the type of knowing that Jesus is referencing here is the kind of knowing that only comes in the context of a devoted, intimate relationship with God. It's the kind of knowing that's tied to intimate relationship. It's the kind of knowing that changes us, that transforms us. I will tell you that the best example I know of this is my re marriage relationship to my lovely wife. Right down here. Would you give Sue a hand? I mean, she is... I know. Hey, listen, I, I, have, I, long, I long ago learned that people like me better after they meet her. I mean, they do. Okay? I just gave it. I'm like, I'm going to use this. Okay, I'm going to go with it. All right? But here's the reality. When I met Sue, I didn't really know her. I knew her just a little bit. But now that I've been with Sue for 27 years, I've lived life with her. I've cried with her. I've laughed with her. I've run with her. I've argued with her. I still remember the days she proudly pronounced she was the litigator in the house. And <laughs> Shocking for most of you, I know. <laughs> I've sat by her bed after surgeries. She sat by me after surgeries. She's cared for me, loved me, fed me, clothed me, thank God. I know her so well that I can look at her and I know what she's thinking. When we go into a grocery store, I know when she's about to walk up to some stranger and give them a coin. Thousands of these coins that she's given to people that say, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. And not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Hundreds of mornings I've heard my wife sit at the piano and play spontaneous songs of praise to God. It begins my day. I've walked into her closet that looks more like a, a sanctuary where she kneels sometimes for hours a day and prays unto God. I know her because I've lived with her in intimate relationships. In the first couple years of our marriage, we went to a marriage enrichment conference. And at that conference, the one thing I heard from God the entire time that we were there, God said, if you want to know me, if you want to know me, then get to know your wife. If you want to learn what it means to love me with all your heart, your soul, your strength, then get to know your wife. I gave your wife to you as a tutor. 
I gave your wife to you as a teacher. I sent Jesus in the flesh so you could know me. I'm giving you tangible, physical things in your presence so that you can know me. Don't come talk to me about knowing me until you get to know her. Knowing God is the act of knowing him in the context of an intimate relationship. It's not microwaved. You can't take a pill for it. It doesn't happen in 30 seconds or less. It's not a drive through window experience. It takes time, quality time. Well, how important is knowing God? Hear me when I say this. That knowing God is the single most important focus in the life of a Christian. Indeed, I would go so far to say that every other aspect of our lives, both individually and corporately, must be focused on and oriented around knowing God. Knowing God must become the single integrated aim of everything we do if we are to know him. Meaning, and through our family, through our work, through our fun, through our church, through all of our activities, fill in the blank. God must permeate and be the object of knowing in every single one of those. Now, I hear some of you out there, you're saying, that sounds great in principle, Steve, but are you expecting me to quit everything in my life and run off to a monastery to become a monk that focuses on God every moment of my life? Or for you women, a nunk? You know, that's kind of a nun and a monk, and you get a nunk, okay? Is that what you mean? I got to go do that? No. No, I'm not suggesting that you leave your families or your friends or your work or your education or your fun or your church or even your phones. Oh, quite the contrary. I'm suggesting that you make every aspect of your life better by integrating knowing God as the highest focus in that. Because God wants to be involved in relationship with you in every aspect of your life. We don't have a religious life as a Christian and a work life and a family life and a play life and a whatever life. We have one life. And knowing God must be the highest aim that permeates, that, that focuses, that becomes essentially a litmus test for what I do, say, act, think in every aspect of that life. The temptation is to focus or to be devoted on lesser things, which essentially become idols or gods to us. We make ourselves the idol by focusing on our own selfish wants or desires or pride. And we leave God out entirely. What am I talking about? I mean, advancement at work. The accumulation of material things. 
the cares of life, the things that Josh talked about in the parable of the soils, pride, our addictions, all of these things can become lesser focuses that essentially amount to spiritual idols in our lives, some of them even in the name of God. Oh, I'm busy reading my Bible, and I'm busy doing this, and I'm busy doing that all in the name of God. But even those can become idols that detract us from knowing God if knowing him is not the focus that directs and guides everything else. Let me say it clearly and simply. For the Christian, there is nothing more important than knowing God. Period. Nothing. The Apostle Paul said it best in Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 11. He said, beginning with verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship God, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, If anyone thinks he has reason for for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What's Paul doing? He's sort of laying out his resume. These are my achievements. These are my markers. These are the things that I use to engage in impression management. I know none of you have you never done that, right? You never, you never done that. Paul says, I got all that stuff, all right? You want to know? Yo, I got the stuff, okay? I got it, he says. But look what he says next. Well, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the, look at this, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, I've got to stop the word rubbish right there. That's a really cool word. That is the Greek word for dung, Okay. Modern translation, New Living Translation, probably in a Passion Translation for all I know, okay? Doo-doo. Look at your neighbor and says, doo-doo. Yeah. Paul say, listen, all that stuff, all those worldly accolades and those, those things that I've amassed around me, the things I engage in for impression management, all that stuff is doo-doo. Compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, listen, nothing, nothing in my life and nothing in your life, nothing, nothing surpasses 
the value or the importance of knowing God. Nothing. Now let me hasten to add, lest you think otherwise, that this whole focus on knowing God and Jesus whom he has sent is not for God. It's for us. Jesus says in John 17, 3, that knowing God is eternal life. Not for him, <laughs> yet eternal life. But for us. Indeed, it is what he has been given authority to give to us in John 17, 2, eternal life. Knowing God and making him the focus is for us. In fact, what does Jesus mean by eternal life, and, and, and how is it related to knowing God? Listen, eternal life is not just about the quantity of life, all right? Everlasting life, eternal, never-ending. There's a time component. Yeah, I get that. But it's also about the quality of life. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. In fact, what Jesus has in mind when he says, I want to give you eternal life, is our transformation into the kind of life that we were intended to live. A life that results from knowing God. A life of intimate relationship with God. The story of man starts in the Garden of Eden. And think of Eden as a place where heaven meets earth. And the scriptures tell us in the first two chapters of Genesis that God literally walked with man in the garden. Can you imagine that? In the cool of the day, the cool means wind, in the wind of the day, that God walked with man in the garden. But as we all know, man sinned, humankind sinned, and he was cast out of the garden. And the rest of the Bible is a story of how God brings humankind back to Eden, a new Eden. He gives us promises along the way. His presence first dwells in the tabernacle that they carry with them around in the wilderness. And God meets with them in the tabernacle. And then in the temple, later, there's a temple that's built and God's presence resides in the temple. And, and they come and they meet with God in the temple in front of the Ark of the Covenant and worship God there. But then he sends Jesus, the image of God, the second Adam, and Jesus comes as one of us. And Jesus does something that no human has ever done. He leads a sinless life. And this week we celebrate that he went to the cross for us and he created a path so that we could be in relationship with God again. So that God could bring us back to Eden. And as he's hanging on the cross and as he dies, the scriptures tell us that the veil from... The veil to the temple that, that was in front of the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. Meaning that the presence of God would no longer be housed in a building like this. But, but going forward, as John says in chapter 14, the presence of God will be in each of you. Because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit who will come and not only be with you, but will be in you. And where you go, take the kingdom of God with you because I will be in you. And what Jesus does is he initiates the steps. He initiates the new path. He then sets us on a track where we are headed, and you get to Revelation chapter 21. You go home and read it today. You get to the end of the book. Here's what it says. God comes back and brings a new Eden. 
He gives us a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where we no longer see through a glass dimly, but we will see him face to face and we will walk with him in the garden again. To be ready for that, to be ready for that, we must know God now. And it's in that knowing, intimate relationship. You can't be in the presence of God and not be changed. It's, it's, it's in that knowing presence and relationship that God begins to mold us and shape us into the image that he stamped into each one of us uniquely. A lot of people say we're going to be like Christ. Yes, we are. But you know what? Christ never denigrates your identity. God made each one of you as a unique being to be honored and loved and cared for. Every, all life is precious to God. God wants you to be you. He wants you to be everything that he created you to be. That is eternal life. And eternal life starts when we come to know Jesus. And when we enter into relationship with him, by faith, to know him, that's when the transformation starts. And that transformation we call spiritual growth. A spiritual growth is merely a part of the eternal life that Jesus gives to us. It is the natural result of knowing God. It should never be the aim. The aim is knowing God. Spiritual growth occurs as a natural process. Now, I learned this last summer when I planted a garden. First garden I've ever planted, okay? I should have come and talked to Destiny. She would have helped me on this. But I, I planted this 4 by four by 12 garden, and I told everybody about it, okay? I'm just telling you. I planted a garden. I'm a gardener. So I planted these plants, and... Uh, I made about every rookie mistake you could make. Okay. And some of them lived, and uh, some of them uh, kind of died. But I found, for the ones that lived, if I put them in the right soil, and I tended them, I knew them. They knew me. <laughs> they grew. They naturally grew. I didn't have to tell them to grow. They just naturally grew. Yeah. And they yielded fruit. And I don't even think they thought about it. <laughs> I, I guess what I'm saying is that's, I think that's what spiritual growth should be like for us. Yeah. I got one swing thought, people. I want to know God. And that's for me. I'm just being downright selfish about it. I want eternal life. And, and if I make that my aim, the various things that Josh and Aaron have talked about, reading the word, prayer, service, fellowship with you, fine people, stewardship, giving, tithing, simplicity, solitude, I could go on. All of those things are just means for God's presence to become real in my life. They are means for me to know God. 
If I ever make one of them the end, it will be a law and it will be dead. So I want you to read your word. And I want you to pray. And I want you to have fellowship with one another. And I, I want you to be a steward because, you see, all of those things are things that we do in relationships in one form or another to make them real. You say, well, how is it that I know God? Well, I want you to think about your best relationship. And how did that relationship begin? You met someone. But how did that relationship ever grow? Well, I'm sure you communicated. I'm sure you talked and listened. And I'm sure you did things together. And I'm sure you cried or you laughed or you, you jumped on one another. You, you, you argued. You, 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 you do all the things that people do when they're developing serious, intimate relationships. You were vulnerable. They were vulnerable to you. That's exactly what the spiritual disciplines are designed to do. For us to talk to God. For us to listen to God and know him through that. For us to do things with God. To go on service. I mean, Steve Bowen, our, one of our great pastors, is going to be preaching the Sunday after Easter on go. And he's an amazing servant of God taking us out to serve the community. Why? Not because that's an end in itself, but because it is a means to know God in action. To build relationship with God. One day a mentor asked me, he said, Steve, who is the king in the land of the blind? I don't know. Somebody who can see, maybe? I don't know. He said, the king in the land of the blind is the man with one eye. And I'm thinking, you know, well, it'd probably be good if you had two, you know. No, 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 you're missing the point. It's not a physical illustration. It's not about having one eye. It's about having one focus. We live in a world that is very fractured. In fact, you may be feeling it every day yourself. What God is calling us to is to be a people of one eye, of one swing thought, where the goal, the focus that permeates everything we do is knowing him. Eternal life, spiritual growth, and transformation only come as a result of knowing God in intimate relationship. We were made in the image of God to have that one focus, that one relationship above all others. We can't stuff anything else in that basket. It's not eternal life. It will never work. We've all tried, but we were meant for one relationship, one ultimate relationship. This week, we celebrate the good news that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can now know God and have intimate relationship. We can have and experience the eternal life that he gives us, and we can spiritually grow and transform into the persons he made us to be. And when I realize that, and when I live like that, this is how I feel. Ah! I feel good. I knew that I would not. I feel good. 
Some of, you, some of you are falling asleep, and so I thought I had to throw that in there at the end, just to wake you back up. But seriously, though, God wants us to feel good. And you can have eternal life. There may be some of you here this morning who have never committed your life to Christ. You've never said, God, I want to know you. I want to make you number one in my life. There might even be some of you here who have said that before. But you've been messing around with other idols. And you want to come back this morning. You want to say, listen. On Palm Sunday, on the week that Christ went to the cross for me. I want to make you number one again. I want to ask the, the leaders to come forward who would pray and, and the band to come and play. And if we could just sing, sing a, a song or so. And, and just give, if people will just sit quietly and pray. I just want to give a minute or two for people to come forward and to pray. And then I will dismiss us to go. Can we do that?